All right, you guys ready for part two, where we find out the conclusion? Well, first of all, we're gonna find out what that crazy node meant. Uh, Sherlock does a great job of deducing the meaning there. And then uh, we'll get into the rest of the story and find out what is going on. Thanks, guys, for listening. And don't forget about the Sherlock competition. If you just click the uh, show notes, you can check out all the, the ways the, the way to enter and get in on that action. So without uh, further ado, I give you the conclusion to this chapter of the memoirs of Sherlock Holmes. He sat down opposite to me, drew the lamp to the edge of the table, and handed me a short note scribbled, as you see, upon a single sheet of grey paper. The supply of game for London is going steadily up, it ran. Headkeeper Hansen, we believe, has now been told to receive all orders of flypaper, and for preservation of your hen pheasant's life. I dare say my face looked as bewildered as yours did just now when I first read this message. Then I reread it very carefully. It was evidently as I had thought, and some secret meaning must lie buried in this strange combination of words. Or could it be that there was a prearranged significance to such phrases as flypaper and hen pheasant? Such a meaning would be arbitrary and could not be deduced in any way. And yet I was loath to believe that this was the case, and the presence of the word Hansen seemed to show that the subject of the message was as I had guessed, and that it was from Beddoes rather than the sailor. I tried it backwards, but the combination life pheasant's hen was not encouraging. Then I tried alternate words, but neither the of four nor supply game London promised to throw any light upon it. And then, in an instant, the key of the riddle was in my hands, and I saw that every third word, beginning with the first, would give a message which might well drive old Trevor to despair. It was short and terse, the warning as I now read it to my companion. The game is up. Hudson has told all. Fly for your life. Victor Trevor sank his face into shaking hands. It must be that, I suppose, said he. This is worse than death, for it means disgrace as well. But what is the meaning of these headkeepers and hen pheasants? It means nothing to the message, but it might mean a good deal to us if we had no other means of discovering the sender. You see that he has begun by writing, The game is, and so on. Afterwards, he had, to fulfill the prearranged cipher, to fill in any two words in each space. He would naturally use the first words which came to his mind. And if there were so many which referred to sport among them, you may be tolerably sure that he is either an ardent shot or interested in breeding. Do you know anything of this Beddoes? Why, now that you mention it, said he, I remember that my poor father used to have an invitation from him to shoot over his preserves every autumn. Then it is undoubtedly from him that the note comes, said I. It only remains for us to find out what the secret was which the sailor Hudson seems to have held over the heads of these two wealthy and respected men. Alas, Holmes, I fear that it is one of sin and shame, cried my friend. But from you I shall have no secrets. Here is a statement which was drawn up by my father when he knew that the danger from Hudson had become imminent. I found it in the Japanese cabinet, as he told the doctor. Take it and read it to me, for I have neither the strength nor the courage to do it myself. These are the very papers, Watson, which he handed to me, and I will read them to you, as I read them in the old study that night to him. They are endorsed outside, as you see, some particulars of the voyage of the bark Gloria Scott, from her leaving Falmouth on the 8th October 1855, to her destination in N-latitude, 
15 degrees, 20 feet, west longitude, 25 degrees, 14 feet, on November 6th. It is in the form of a letter, and runs in this way. My dear, dear son, now that approaching disgrace begins to darken the closing years of my life, I can write with all truth and honesty that it is not the terror of the law, it is not the loss of my position in the county, nor is it my fall in the eyes of all who have known me, which cuts me to the heart. But it is the thought that you should come to blush for me, you who love me, and who have seldom, I hope, had reason to do other than respect me. But if the blow falls, which is forever hanging over me, then I should wish you to read this, that you may know straight from me how far I have been to blame. On the other hand, if all should go well, which may kind God Almighty grant, then, if by any chance this paper should still be undestroyed and should fall into your hands, I conjure you, by all you hold sacred, by the memory of your dear mother, and by the love which has been between us, to hurl it into the fire and never give one thought to it again. If then your eyes go on to read this line, I know that I have already been exposed and dragged from my home, or, as is more likely, for you know that my heart is weak, by lying with my tongue sealed forever in death. In either case, the time for suppression is past, and every word which I tell you is the naked truth, and this I swear as I hope for mercy. My name, dear lad, is not Trevor. I was James Armitage in my younger days, and you can understand now the shock that it was to me a few weeks ago when your college friend addressed me in words which seemed to imply that he had surmised my secret. As Armitage it was that I entered a London banking house, and as Armitage I was convicted of breaking my country's laws, and was sentenced to transportation. Do not think very harshly of me, laddie. It was a debt of honour, so-called, which I had to pay, and I used money which was not my own to do it, in the certainty that I could replace it before there could be any possibility of its being missed. But the most dreadful ill luck pursued me. The money which I had reckoned upon never came to hand, and a premature examination of accounts exposed my deficit. The case might have been dealt leniently with, but the laws were more harshly administered thirty years ago than now. And, on my twenty-third birthday, I found myself chained as a felon with thirty-seven other convicts in tween decks of the bark Gloria Scott, bound for Australia. It was the year fifty-five when the Crimean War was at its height, and the old convict ships had been largely used as transports in the Black Sea. The government was compelled, therefore, to use smaller and less suitable vessels for sending out their prisoners. The Gloria Scott had been in the Chinese tea trade, but she was an old-fashioned, heavy-bowed, rod-beamed craft, and the new clippers had cut her out. She was a five-hundred-ton boat, and besides her thirty-eight jailbirds, she carried twenty-six of a crew, eighteen soldiers, a captain, three mates, a doctor, a chaplain, and four warders. Nearly a hundred souls were in her, all told, when we set sail for Farmouth. The partition between the cells of the convicts, instead of being thick oak, as is usual in convict ships, was quite thin and frail. The man next to me, upon the aft side, was one whom I had particularly noticed when we were led down the quay. He was a young man with a clear, hairless face, a long, thin nose, and rather nutcracker jaws. He carried his head very jauntily in the air, had a swaggering style of walking, and was, above all else, remarkable for his extraordinary height. I don't think any of our heads would have come up to his shoulder, and I am sure that he could not have measured less than six and a half feet. 
It was strange among so many sad and weary faces to see one which was full of energy and resolution. The sight of it was to me like a fire in a snowstorm. I was glad then to find that he was my neighbor, and gladder still when, in the dead of the night, I heard a whisper close to my ear, and found that he had managed to cut an opening in the boards which separated us. "'Hello, chummy,' said he. "'What is your name, and what are you here for?' I answered him, and asked in turn who I was talking with. "'I'm Jack Pendergast,' said he, "'and by God, you'll learn to bless my name before you've done with me.' I remember hearing of his case— for it was one which had made an immense sensation throughout the country some time before my own arrest. He was a man of good family and of great ability, but of incurably vicious habits, who had, by an ingenious system of fraud, obtained huge sums of money from the leading London merchants. "'Ha! Huh, you remember my case,' said he proudly. "'Very well indeed. Then maybe you remember something queer about it. What was that, then? I had nearly a quarter of a million, hadn't I? So it was said. But none was recovered, eh? No. Well, where do you suppose the balance is? he asked. I have no idea, said I. Right between my finger and thumb, he cried. By God, I've got more pounds to my name than you've hairs on your head. And if you've money, my son, and know how to handle it and spread it, you can do anything. Now, don't think it likely that a man who could do anything is going to wear his breeches out sitting in the stinking hold of a rat-gutted, beetle-ridden, moldy old coffin of a china coaster. No, sir. Such a man will look after himself, and will look after his chums. You may lay to that. You hold on to him, and he may kiss the book that he'll haul you through. That was his style of talk, and at first I thought it meant nothing. But, after a while, when he had tested me and sworn me with all possible solemnity— he let me understand that there was really a plot to gain command of the vessel. A dozen of the prisoners had hatched it before they came aboard. Pendergast was the leader, and his money was the motive power. I had a partner, said he, a rare good man, as true as a stock to a barrel. He's got the dibs, he has, and where do you think he is at the moment? Why, he's the chaplain of the ship, the chaplain, no less. He came aboard with a black coat and his papers right, and money enough in his box to buy things right up from the keel to main truck. The crew are his, body and soul. He could buy him at so much a gross with a cash discount, and he did it before ever they signed on. He's got two of the warders and Mercer, the second mate, and he'd get the captain himself if he thought he was worth it. "'What are we to do, then?' I asked. "'What do you think?' said he. "'We'll make the coats of some of these soldiers redder than even the tailor did.' "'But they are armed,' said I. And so shall we be, my boy. There's a brace of pistols for every mother's son of us, and if we can't carry this ship with the crew at our back, it's time we were all sent to a young Mrs. Boarding School. You speak to your mate upon the left tonight, and see if he is to be trusted. I did so, and found my other neighbor to be a young fellow in much the same position as myself, whose crime had been forgery. His name was Evans, but he afterwards changed it, like myself, and is now a rich and prosperous man in the south of England. He was ready enough to join the conspiracy, as the only means of saving ourselves, and before we had crossed the bay there were only two other prisoners who were not in the secret. One of these was of weak mind, and we did not dare to trust him, and the other was suffering from jaundice, and could not be of any use to us. From the beginning there was really nothing to prevent us from taking possession of the ship. The crew were a set of ruffians, specially picked for the job.' 
The sham chaplain came in our cells to exhort us, carrying a black bag, supposed to be full of tracks, and so often did he come that by the third day we had each stowed away at the foot of our beds a file, a brace of pistols, a pound of powder, and twenty slugs. Two of the warders were agents of Pendergrast, and the second mate was his right-hand man. The captain, the two mates, two warders, Lieutenant Martin, his eighteen soldiers, and the doctor were all that we had against us. Yet, safe as it was, we determined to neglect no precaution, and to make our attack suddenly by night. It came, however, more quickly than we had expected in this way. One evening, about the third week after our start, the doctor had come down to see one of the prisoners who was ill, and, putting his hand down on the bottom of his bunk, he found the outline of the pistols. If he had been silent, he might have blown the whole thing. But he was a nervous little chap, so he gave a cry of surprise, and turned so pale that the man knew what was up in an instant and seized him. He was gagged before he could give the alarm, and tied down upon the bed. He had unlocked the door that led to the deck, and we were through it in a rush. The two sentries were shot down, and so was a corporal who came running to see what was the matter. There were two more soldiers at the door of the stateroom, and their muskets seemed not to be loaded, for they never fired upon us, and they were shot while trying to fix their bayonets. Then we rushed on into the captain's cabin, but as we pushed the door there was an explosion from within, and there he lay with his brains smeared over the chart of the Atlantic which was pinned upon the table, while the chaplain stood with a smoking pistol in his hand at his elbow. The two mates had both been seized by the crew, and the whole business seemed to be settled. The stateroom was next to the cabin, and we flocked in there and flopped down on the settees, all speaking together, for we were just mad with the feeling that we were free once more. There were lockers all round, and Wilson, the sham chaplain, knocked one of them in and pulled out a dozen of brown sherry. We cracked off the necks of the bottles, poured the stuff into our tumblers, and were just tossing them off, when, in an instant, without warning, there came the roar of muskets in our ears, and the saloon was so full of smoke that we could not see across the table. When it cleared again, the place was a shambles. Wilson and eight others were wriggling on top of each other on the floor, and the blood and the brown sherry on that table turned me sick now when I think of it. We were so cowed by the sight that I think we should have given the job up if it had not been for Pendergrass. He bellowed like a bull and rushed for the door with all that was left alive at his heels. Out we ran, and there on the poop were the lieutenant and ten of his men. The swing skylights above the saloon table had been bit open, and they had fired upon us through the slit. We got on them before they could load, and they stood to it like men. But we had the upper hand of them, and in five minutes it was all over. My God, was there ever a slaughterhouse like that ship? Pendergast was like a raging devil, and he picked the soldiers up as if they had been children, and threw them overboard, alive or dead. There was one sergeant that was horribly wounded, and yet kept on swimming for a surprising time, until someone in mercy blew out his brains. When the fighting was over, there was no one left of our enemies, except just the warder, the mates, and the doctor. It was over them that the great quarrel arose. There were many of us who were glad enough to win back our freedom, and yet who had no wish to have murder on our souls. It was one thing to knock the soldiers over with their muskets in their hands, and it was another to stand by while men were being killed in cold blood. Eight of us, five convicts and three sailors, said that we would not see it done, but there was no moving Pendergast and those who were with him. Our only chance of safety lay in making a clean job of it, said he, and he would not leave a tongue with power to wag in a witness box. It nearly came to our sharing the fate of the prisoners, but, at last, 
He said that if we wished, we might take a boat and go. We jumped at the offer, for we were already sick of these bloodthirsty doings, and we saw that there would be worse before it was done. We were given a suit of sailor's togs each, a barrel of water, two casks, one of junk and one of biscuits, and a compass. Pendergast threw us over a chart, told us that we were shipwrecked mariners whose ship had founded in latitude 15 degrees north and longitude 25 degrees west, and then cut the painter and let us go. And now I come to the most surprising part of my story, my dear son. The seamen had hauled the foreyard aback during the rising, but now, as we left them, they brought it square again, and as there was a light wind from the north and east, the bark began to draw slowly away from us. Our boat lay, rising and falling, upon the long, smooth rollers, and Evans and I, who were the most educated of the party, were sitting in the sheets working out our position and planning what coast we should make for. It was a nice question, for the Cape de Verdes was about five hundred miles to the north of us, and the African coast was about seven hundred to the east. On the whole, as the wind was coming round to the north, we thought that Sierra Leone might be the best, and turned our head in that direction, the bark being at that time nearly hulled down on our starboard quarter. Suddenly, as we looked at her, we saw a dense black cloud of smoke shoot up from her, which hung like a monstrous tree upon the skyline. A few seconds later, a roar like thunder burst upon our ears, and, as the smoke thinned away, there was no sign left of the glorious Scott. In an instant, we swept the boat's head round again, and pulled with all our strength for the place where the haze still trailing over the water marked the scene of this catastrophe. It was a long hour before we reached it, and at first we feared that we had come too late to save anyone. A splintered boat and a number of crates and fragments of spars rising and falling on the waves showed us where the vessel had floundered, but there was no sign of life, and we had turned away in despair when we heard a cry for help, and saw at some distance a piece of wreckage with a man lying stretched across it. When we pulled him aboard the boat, he proved to be a young seaman of the name of Hudson, who was so burned and exhausted that he could give us no account of what had happened until the following morning. It seemed that after we had left, Pendergast and his gang had proceeded to put to death the five remaining prisoners. The two warders had been shot and thrown overboard, and so also had the third mate. Pendergrass then descended into the tween decks, and with his own hand cut the throat of the unfortunate surgeon. There only remained the first mate, who was a bold and active man. When he saw the convict approaching him with a bloody knife in his hand, he kicked off his bonds, which he had somehow contrived to loosen, and, rushing down the deck, he plunged into the aft hold. A dozen convicts, who descended with their pistols in search of him, found him with a matchbox in his hand, seated beside an open powder barrel, which was one of a hundred carried on board, and swearing that he would blow all hands up if he were in any way molested. An instant later, the explosion occurred, though Hudson thought it was caused by the misdirected bullet of one of the convicts rather than the mate's match. Be the cause what it may, it was the end of the Gloria Scott, and of the rabble who held command of her. Such, in a few words, my dear boy, is the history of this terrible business in which I was involved. Next day, we were picked up by the brig Hotspur, bound for Australia, whose captain found no difficulty in believing that we were the survivors of a passenger ship which had foundered. The transport ship Gloria Scott was set down by the Admiralty as being lost at sea, and no word has ever leaked out as to her true fate. After an excellent voyage, the Hotspur landed us at Sydney, where Evans and I changed our names and made our way to the diggings, where, among the crowds who were gathered from all nations, 
we had no difficulty in losing our former identities. The rest I need not relate. We prospered, we travelled, we came back as rich colonials to England, and we bought country estates. For more than twenty years we have led peaceful and useful lives, and we hoped that our past was forever buried. Imagine, then, my feelings, when in the seamen who came to us I recognized instantly the man who had been picked off the wreck. He had tracked us down somehow, and had set himself to live upon our fears. You will understand now how it was that I strove to keep the peace with him, and you will in some measure sympathize with me in the fears which fill me now that he has gone from me to his other victim with threats upon his tongue. Underneath that is written in a hand so shaky as to be hardly legible. Beddoes writes in cipher to say H has told all. Sweet Lord, have mercy on our souls. That was the narrative which I read that night to young Trevor, and I think, Watson, that under the circumstances it was a dramatic one. The good fellow was heartbroken at it, and went out to the Terai tea planting, where I hear that he is doing well. As to the sailor and Beddoes, neither of them was ever heard of again after that day on which the letter of warning was written. They both disappeared, utterly and completely. No complaint had been lodged with the police, so that Beddoes had mistaken a threat for a deed. Hudson had been seen lurking about, and it was believed by the police that he had done away with Beddoes and had fled. For myself, I believe that the truth was exactly the opposite. I think that it is most probable that Beddoes, pushed to desperation and believing himself to have already been betrayed, had revenged himself upon Hudson, and had fled from the country with as much money as he could lay his hands on. Those are the facts of the case, Doctor, and if they are of any use to your collection, I am sure that they are very heartily at your service. Thank you guys so much for listening. Really appreciate all your support and just you know, sharing the podcast. That's the biggest thing. Just letting other people know about it, which you know, one way, amazing way to do that is to go ahead and sh- uh, join in on the Sherlock competition, which is going to be going on until we finish this book. So once we're done with this book, then a winner is going to be announced. Actually, five winners, I think, is what we decided on. So five winners are going to get a giant compendium of Sherlock Holmes books. So that's really pretty cool prize if you ask me and hope you guys will go ahead and enter that and help spread the word and help the podcast grow so i can bring you more awesome audiobooks that's what it's all about thanks so much for listening today guys we'll talk to you next time when i was in school i absolutely hated writing it wasn't until i was a bit older that i came to understand the power of words if you're a business owner you understand that power too a business blog when done right can drive sales increase revenue and get you more customers but as a business owner you probably don't have the time to do all that writing plus if you're not a copywriter by trade you might feel like you're just kind of throwing words out there and they're not actually accomplishing anything the good news is there's a simple solution check it out i call it the ultimate blog post checklist for businesses with online stores this checklist will allow you to write better more effective articles that convert readers into buyers It's full of easy-to-follow examples to get your creativity flowing based on experience of nearly a million words written. And best of all, it's effective on any type of article in any industry or niche. I've successfully used this exact checklist on topics from pool table reviews to investment advice. Tired of spending tons of time writing stuff that doesn't convert? This checklist will change that by giving you highly effective blog posts and articles that transform readers into paying customers. Go to invicta.enterprises slash free checklist and start saving time and transforming your writing now. That's invicta.enterprises slash free checklist.